and welcome to This Movie is Gay, a podcast that takes your favorite apparently heterosexual films and demonstrates why that is in fact not the case. I'm Haley. I'm Emma. And we're back with our thematic recaps of the pod thus far. Uh, Last week, we had a discussion of why English slash Anglophile schoolboy (laughs) stories are so gay. And this week, we're back to talk about why is both being friends and also being rivals so gay? That's right. Hating each other is gay. Collaborating is also gay. It turns (laughs) out the answer is every interpersonal relationship is gay. Uh, Thanks for listening. You can find us on... (laughs) The shortest podcast. We're going for the record. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 30 seconds. Bye. Yeah. I mean, I like, I joke, but also do I, or Mm -hmm. rather, I mean, I feel like something we should like try and talk about when talking about this is like, what is the difference between these relationships and every, like, why is it not just every relationship? What is it about like these friendships besides, you know, the elusive free song? Um. There it was. We didn't, for some, somehow we did Academia is Gay last week without using the word free song. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. We're making up for it this week. Um, yeah, that's right. We're going in search of the the elusive gay of what makes these relationships, even though it sounds like we're talking about all relationships, what actually makes these ones gay? Exactly. I mean, that's mm. the thing that like, I think would be interesting to like reflect on at the beginning is like, mm. We combined sort of like buddies and rivalry because we never ended up finding as many rival movies as we sort of hoped and expected to. Right. Right. And even a couple of the ones that we did cover, we kind of had to stretch the definition a bit or we, or we weren't, we were expecting them to be more rivalrous than they were. Like, that's how we felt about Top Gun. You know, people kept being like, like we, you know, the whole episode was us being like, it's set up as this big kind of like, you know, macho rivalry. And then we were like, no, it isn't. It's not about that as, as much as we wanted it to be even. And Chariots of Fire as well. Chariots of Fire, like, yeah. Almost the exact same thing of like, these characters don't spend any time together, actually. Right, right, right. We just want everyone to be more obsessed with each other. More obsessed. Like, for example, when we were like thinking about this, we were like, okay, so what are the movies we've done? And it took us forever to realize that like the great rivalry movie that we did was Les Mis. That's right. The granddaddy. I mean, yeah. Episode 10, our first swing into the real absurd, I felt. (laughs) What are you talking about? That was an incredibly compelling argument. It was, it was, it was. And, And we got to do a lot of impressions of Russell Crowe as Javert, which honestly like will happen again. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think that like that and what you just said gets at like the heart in some ways of both versions of this, which is about, it's about kind of obsession right. with one another because like, yes, Javert is obsessed with Valjean, but like mm-hmm. in Ocean's Eleven, Danny and Rusty are obsessed with each other too. Right, 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 right. Collaboration usually also equals obsession, like collaboration of the kind that we have talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, kind, because like, the, th- the whole thing, like thinking about another great uh, film, The Road to El Dorado, like, or, you know, something like Newsies, it's like they get structured as this kind of 11th hour breakup that's like really devastating because right. it's like so upsetting for one partner to think that the other partner like has other interests. 
and right. like, cares about other people. And I think that's absolutely reflective of a kind of obsession or 100%. the whole thing in Ocean's Eleven and like the heist movies of like this lifestyle. Yes. Yeah. Which we weirdly enable right. us to be together. Right, right, right. Which we weirdly talked about, I feel like the most during Road to El Dorado, because it's like this thing of like the deep betrayal of how dare you try to live another kind of life than the kind of life that we like built together. And it's so much more sort of like gay and deeply felt than you would expect in like an animated Disney film. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think DreamWorks. I do think, I mean, I think the Oceans movies kind of get into that in the later worst installments. In Ocean's Eleven itself, it's pretty much still just in the joyful, like, we love this and we'll do this forever, like, energy. Right, right. But it's interesting because it's also, I mean, like, we talked about it so much in Les Mis of just the thing of, like, the realization that Javert doesn't matter as much to Valjean as Valjean does to Javert is basically, like, why he jumps off of a waterfall or whatever. And it's just, like, that's some real shit. I guess, which is like the dynamic that we kept finding and wishing felt more purposeful in like Top Gun. And yes. I remember Chariots and Fire in particular, we talked about how um, the Scottish one whose name has just completely absented my brain <laughs> um, yep. doesn't matter to Abrahams at all. Or like right. Abrahams is obsessed with him and he like kind of doesn't seem to know who Abrahams is, but that's never right. quite the point. Like right. a more interesting version would be one where that obliviousness is part of what is so painful for Abrahams. It's like, I need right. the rival and you are so beyond me. You don't need me at all, even right. as like a competitor. Right. Yeah, that thing of, I think we referenced it in one of those episodes, the the Mad Men thing, the classic Mad Men thing of, uh, you know, uh, why do you hate me? I don't hate you. I don't think about you at all. Yeah. That kind of, you know, because like that's a certain kind of tragedy. If like one person is deeply like you know invests the entire idea of their identity as like their relationship to this other person and then the other person is like you know does a Valjean and is like don't worry about it you can go I'm not gonna change like I'm not gonna run I don't care about this and I guess that's like theater in a moment like Road to El Dorado or Newsies of like I thought we were on the same page, but in fact, has this been an unbalanced relationship in that way? Like, in fact, have Mm. you never cared about me the same way that I cared about you? I mean, which leads me to where all roads lead for us, the greatest film of all time, Master and Commander. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just the fact, I was thinking about mid, like sort of uh, like kind of third act betrayals, you know, which, and that's, that's a huge one in Master and Commander, the sort of thing of like the, you love the Navy more than you love me. <laughs> you love the Navy more than you love me. Exactly. Like the um, the emotional quality of the betrayal of like, you made me a promise and the whole kind of subject to the requirements of the service thing that we talked about so much of just like the indignity of the relationship being subdued, like of the, the, the relationship being subdued by a, by a, like a power structure that they didn't really consent to be part of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this is making me ask, like, is an umbrella question I think I want to ask about this first phase of the conversation I think applies to a lot of our Rivals movies Mm -hmm. and is the fear lurking beneath some of the, like, breakups in the partnership movies is, is an unrequited obsession queer? (laughs) Like, if you have a friend slash rival slash same sex kind of 
person around whom you're orbiting and you come to realize that there is an un like a the feelings that you have about each other are unbalanced <laughs> is that is, something that's always kind of coded a little bit yes gay? yes yeah yeah okay let's unpack that that's a great question so yeah I mean is unrequited longing gay <laughs> yeah because it's like I mean but I think like it doesn't have to be longing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it can also just be like I thought we I thought we were yes on the same page and like we're not uh -huh. or like we we're in the in the lamest way, a misaligned obsession way. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Because I'm thinking about, this is like such a <laughs> tangent, but like I'm thinking about when Disney did their terrible Beauty and the Beast remake and they were like, LeFou is going to be gay. Oh, and right. everyone TBT. was like, I mean, and this I guess goes in our, you know, throwback to our Disney villains conversation, but they did it like right. LeFou was already coded gay in a mocking yes. way. Yes. Because he was the sidekick who was overly obsessed and overly deferential and like, you know, constantly kind of fluttering around the edges yes. of this like manly man. And in that right. sense of like, he was already coded that way because of the unbalanced relationship that they had. Like, is that unbalanced relationship in itself? Yeah. Okay. That's great. That's great. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, okay. Hmm. Yes. You know, okay, the, this is at the risk of really starting a whole other tangent. Um, <laughs> what you just made me think of is a series of conversations that we had last year when it came out about the musical Hamilton. Mm. About, do you remember this? We no. Had long, okay, well, we had a long series of sort of like very, very tense, like sort of Hamill discourse Mm -hmm. um, conversations about the fact that it would be uh, that basically I think as I remember our kind of conclusion <laughs> that we came to about the fact that it would be a better show if if Hamilton and Burr were more obsessed with each other but, and you know what I mean because but there is something because I've talked to other people who do feel this way is that there is something a little bit queer feeling anyway about how obsessed Burr is with Hamilton but it would be more so if it was, if the rivalry was mutual, which is sort of, I don't know, it just reminded me of that conversation of the fact that like, mm, yeah, well, it, it's fitting it being a misaligned obsession. Reminds yeah, me exactly. It. No, that's exactly in keeping with this pattern. I mean, my like Hamilton hot take is that Burr should have given like the, Eliza should have been the narrator or Burr should have had the ending. It can't be both, but you know, separate. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah, I think that is, Maybe we should have done Hamilton. <laughs> Listen, y'all. <laughs> if people, I don't know. Tricky. It's not really, is it a movie? Well. Or is it just a recording of a stage play? But it anyway. Is, yeah, I mean, interesting. It is certainly a widely, uh, a widely metabolized cultural product. <laughs> so. Um, also, but. actually, can I tell the story of the time that Lin-Manuel Miranda personally queer baited me? Um, <laughs> yes, please tell us. So back in the day before Lin-Manuel Miranda was, you know, pre-Hamilton, when he was like famous, but only kind of to musical theater people, I followed him on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. And he'd do these like Q&As periodically and be like, I'm in an airport, ask me questions until my plane takes off. And so <laughs> I knew he was writing Hamilton. I have been obsessed with Alexander Hamilton since I was 15. And so I asked him, is there going to be a Hamilton Lawrence Lafayette love triangle? in your musical and he replied wait and see 
which to me <laughs> really hints at something that is not there. Now, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. Even at, a little. At Lynn Manuel Miranda. Where's yeah. the Where's Lawrence the Lafayette triangle? Hamilton triangle that you promised Haley? You promised me on Twitter. Every couple months, someone will find that tweet and like it, and I'll be reminded of this like literally five years ago. Twitter. That's incredible. That's um, incredible. I mean, anyway. hey, let's just leave that on the table and ponder it. Yes. Um, no, but like, uh, is there something, I guess like what I'm sort of asking is like, because yeah. our whole thing, right, is structures. And I think that's why we didn't use the word free song last time is because I think right. now, especially in this like thematic recap, what we're trying to dig into is not what makes any individual instance of these things feel gay, but like, what is it about these concepts right. and like structurally is is much in the way that like certain words they'd use in like 50s movies like is the mismatched affection or obsession thing in itself a mm. queer code and I'm thinking mm. now that I've said 50s movies of the 30s movie Holiday with Cary Grant uh. where there's a character He's a, a his love interest. Cary Grant's love interest is played by Catherine Hepburn, mm. um, and there's a scene where Catherine Hepburn's character is talking to her brother okay. and, about Cary Grant, and um, like he's the brother is sort of like you're in love with him, aren't you? And she's like, yeah, I am. And the brother, who's barely a character, just goes like, yes, it's hell, isn't it? And you sort of realize that like this whole time, this like nothing character who's just been sort of floating at the edges is yeah. also inconsequentially like with no bearing on the plot in love with Cary Grant's character too and mm. just that whole feeling of like and in that like instant of unrequited love and sort of unrequited and like unfulfilled narrative potential and yes itself kind of you're like oh so this character's gay and like this itself is the signifier of that yes. not even the love as much as like the shape the love takes 100%. That's brilliant. Yes. Yes. Well, yes, then I think, I mean, I think, yes, I think right away, as soon as you posed the question, I was like, okay, well, yes, yeah. but, but how can we like, sort of, how can we work backward and like make the proof? You know what I mean? Like, what is that? Like, the thesis statement. Now we need the evidence. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think what you just said about unfulfilled narrative potential is actually, mm. the, is actually the answer because I feel like what we immediately understand, like deep in our bones, about that side character, you know, about the the presence of that particular kind of um... Ned. I think is his name in that movie. I forget everyone else's <laughs> name. I think, um, yeah, I think unfulfilled narrative potential. Like, uh, I mean, let's say longing, even though it doesn't have to take that shape. Like mm -hmm. that um, uh, that directionality that doesn't necessarily even believe in its own ending because more often than not, the world doesn't provide the narrative structure for that ending to exist. Yeah, well, and it reminds me of something that we have said a lot for a lot of different movies, which is a sense of some characters of like, there's a part of this story that isn't being told. Yes. There is more to this than like, this movie is either allowed or able or willing to say. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and I mean, you know, when it's, when it's unrequited, like when it's one-sided, which it often is, mm -hmm. I feel like the part of what's happening there is the assumption 
in some stories, I'm trying to think of examples now, but in some stories, I feel like what's happening on the part of the person feeling the feelings is an assumption that the object of the feelings won't even not only not return them, but might not even notice, like might not even know how to see them. Yeah. Well, it's the idea. I think we talked about it in Chariots of Fire a lot of Uh like the thing you think you want isn't the thing you want. Like, or, you know, Javert, you think you want to catch Jean Valjean and that's what you want from him. And then you get the thing you want from him and it does not sate that longing. You know, what's interesting about that is that I don't know if we even said this when we did Les Mis, but, you know, in the in the context of the conversation we're currently having, I feel like it's like what you wanted is not to catch Valjean. What you wanted was to chase Valjean. Right. I mean, yeah. Or once you caught him to have something from him that is not sending him to prison. Right. But it's also interesting because I had never thought of it in that context of like, why does he kill himself? Well, the chase is over. And the thing that gave your life meaning is not necessarily even the relationship, but the chase. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, what is the goal even? Not justice. Like to be the person chasing this person is the, is the goal. Like, I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what, like structures without conclusions. Mm Mm-hmm are what these are, you know what I mean? It's just, there can be no conclusion to that, which is why it's so often a side character, Mm -hmm. because if it was a main character, you'd have to do something about it. Yeah, and what we have found that they do when it's a main character is sublimate it into something else. Yes. So when it's the rivals, obviously it's sublimated into the rivalry. So it's the chase, it's the the race, it's, you know, the other thing. And then in things like Newsies, where they're not rivals, it's sublimated either into these nothing, right, you know, female characters, or things in Master and Commander, like this promise. Work partnership as well. I mean, right. Yeah, it's like, it's interesting, because the collaborators, it's like, I feel like we specifically used the word collaborators to describe the other kind of relationship rather than friendship, because collaboration Mm -hmm. is like, it's gay because they are engaged in a task together, whether it's like, you know, convincing the people of Mesoamerica that they're gods in, um, <laughs> you know, like whether whether it's a con with a specific aim or whether it's like, you know, a we're sp- newsboys on strike or, yeah, you know. Some of our sports movies. Right. Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Yes. Yes, which is its own whole thing too. I mean, it's interesting because obviously we have we have Sherlock in both of the, well, we have Sherlock on both of these lists because Sherlock and Moriarty certainly fall under the rival energy kind of heading, but Sherlock and Watson obviously fall under the kind of collaborator work partnership heading. Yeah, they get a little bit of both. They do. Um, but I want to jump on the thing you said a second ago mm. about how like Javert's thing is he wants to be the person who is chasing Valjean, because I think that's the other kind of bullet point about these, which is that it is about, that makes them different from just saying every potential relationship is gay. Is it something about seeking your identity in another person? Yes. And so, and I think that like, that's something again, that it like, it comes on both sides of the sort of, slash mark of (laughs) collaboration slash rivalry um whether yeah yeah well yeah because it's just like I'm thinking about the both sides of the slash mark thing really quickly of just the fact that it's like relationships where you need 
the other person in order. It's like, you know, it's a thing that you couldn't accomplish alone, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, that has just made me think now of like another kind of recurring thread that we've discussed, which is the person who tells your life story or being yes. the person who tells someone else's life story and having your, that is like another form of both partnership, but also right definition in and by someone else's identity. Right. Right. That's so interesting. So we have talked about that a lot. What are the ones that fall under that? Because most notably, of course, it's Sherlock because John like in world is literally Sherlock's like biographer. Yeah. Well, so we have it. I mean, we have it a little bit in a league of their own with the kind of framing device. Sure. Um, We have it in a very weird way in Victor Frankenstein. (laughs) A movie I think we will will, um, be returning to perhaps in more detail in a different episode upcoming maybe next time. And we cannot wait. (laughs) We cannot wait. Um, Fight Club. Yeah. You know, uh, and then Stand By Me, I think was sort of the big, big one. Mansfield Park where she, you know, all of our, a lot of our kind of writerly ones. Yes, right, of Um, course, right, the writer people. A little bit of, oh no, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Well, I was gonna say like, uh, alongside that is the sort of like, tell my story, but also like, uh, via living for me, because Mm -hmm. that's kind of the Gattaca subgenre of that, of of like the self-immolation and then you kind of like, you carry us on, like you take my place kind of energy of that. Yeah, I kind of feel like next time, not to like give away what we might talk about but like I think we need to like pin and like tease that like we need to talk about Gattaca and Victor Frankenstein as like a pair we kind of do (laughs) um but we'll save that for later because I think that's touching on some different things um you know and in our like sort of (laughs) we don't want to call it incest but not not way little women I think falls under this for Joe. yes Um, the kind of version of herself that she is trying to like Mm -hmm memorialize alongside her sisters sure when she's yeah. writing the story um but it is I think Sherlock is like the big one I mean right. all versions of Sherlock Holmes all versions right are the big one for this of like your entire being and self is about creating someone mm-hmm. else <laughs> Right. And then in a weird way, I feel like one of the things that we, one of the positive things that we gathered the most out of our endless BBC Sherlock kind of phase of the podcast was the fact, I mean, besides the fact that we went fully insane. Yeah, I was going to say, besides my nervous breakdown. Yeah, if you go back and listen to those, you will find incriminating evidence of the fact that we lost our minds during week four or five. (laughs) But um, we did five weeks of that. Anyway, um... But uh, the way that it turned as the series went on and as John's role as biographer kind of became increased in importance, what we discovered, which was so interesting and I felt, I felt like kind of unexpected, was the kind of movious band of identity shifting where after a while, like John's whole identity is subsumed into chronicling Sherlock. But after a while, Sherlock's identity becomes the one that John has crafted for him. Mm-hmm. So at first it's a job of reporting, but then after a while, it's weirdly a job of like construction and then life sort of imitates art rather than the other way around you know what I mean it does yeah and I mean and that kind of like ties me back to last week a little bit in this sense that I think we get in a lot of these movies like Stand By Me and Little Women 
um, off the top of like the two big ones of like the queerness of memorializing the nostalgic time in which yeah. you were your best self. 100%. Yeah. Um, right. And so right. like, which is something we talked about a lot last week. It's like this kind of one bright shining hour, this moment when there's endless right. possibility and perhaps you could go forward into your life being the person you are right now rather than being crushed. Um, and right. I think both Stand By Me and Little Women are writers who, and in some ways it's interesting to like also lump Watson into someone who's trying to do that as it's happening. That's to amazing. Preserve yeah this relationship and this version of himself, which is queer, in like the sort of fear and recognition that someday it will be gone. Yes, right, right. Yeah, in a weird way, yeah, it combines the obsession energy with the energy of, of brevity, like we talked, the, the sort of like, yeah, as you say, the, which these is were the happiest days, yeah. So baffling that people were angry at the end of Sherlock when what it ends with is they will do this forever. It ends right. with an explicit rejection of the idea that there's anything temporary about this way of being and of living. Right. Which like they, and also it's like they were apart and they're back together. Like it's a, like they, it did end and then it began again. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that to me is why, yeah. I mean, I, and also they're raising a baby together. So, I mean, like it's gay as all fuck. And that's a whole other thing. I mean, that was the big, the surprise twist ending of our entire Sherlock adventure was like, Actually, it's super, super gay, and we don't know what the fans are talking about, but... It was gay all along. That would have been another good title for this podcast. It was gay all along. That's right. The the true uh, adventure was the gay we found along the way. I don't know. But I mean, it's like to, to say the obvious thing. Like, yeah. the whole idea of at least like a sort of Christian inflected marriage is like becoming one being. So of course, any structure that leads you to sort of base Mm. your identity and sense of self on a kind of merging with another in some respect. Feels romantic. Yeah. Right. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. Because we're sort of trained to think like, oh, that merging of identities and selves is what marriage and thus romance is Mm. yes yeah unlike a friendship where you sort of are supposed to kind of save a space for Mm -hmm. romance (laughs) maybe frankly but like other things you know you don't give your whole self to your friend right right yes yes and if you do it's gay (laughs) and then once you do it's gay yeah and once you do it's gay uh yeah I mean yeah I'm still just thinking about master commander I was I mean thinking about because the the it is the in a way the platonic ideal of the kind of collaborator version of this relationship because it's like thinking while you were talking just there I was thinking about them playing those duets together on the cello and the violin and just the fact that it's like okay well yeah you are work partners you live in a, you've like purposefully chosen to inhabit a universe where the option of that romance that you would save a space for doesn't exist. And all of your leisure is spent together in the like creative collaborative act. So it's like the, you know, it's like every box is like, they're straight up married. That's why. 
And it's also like, this is their grown up job and career. It's not like, okay, well, you've been a heist fan throughout your 20s and 30s. And now you need to really like get married and have a life and retire and do your one last job and stop it. I was going to say, that's right. It's not one last job after we catch Napoleon, we're done. You know, I mean, it's it's like. like, And as we sort of discussed in the podcast as well, like very specifically, Stephen's place of being welcome in, but fundamentally outside of the naval hierarchy means that like they're not subject to the things that separate other partners Mm -hmm. in the movie they don't have to worry that he's going to die in battle in the same way he's not going to get like assigned to a different ship right they can just be together as long as they want to be right right the navy's gay y'all Mm-hmm. It's just so gay, but yeah, but yeah, but I mean, I think it's like, I'm trying to think about the other collaborative pairs that feel like that. Cause obviously, yeah, Sherlock and Watson are another huge one in the way that we've just outlined about, you know, the chronicling is so gay in its own way, but like, I mean, throwing it back to Newsies, the OG, it's just like, it's interesting because Newsies is all such a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. And part of the romance of it is like, it's, it's collaborative it's also in a way like in the Sherlock and Watson thing, there is a merging of voices for a while in the sense that, you know, like David literally, you know, gives Jack the words that he can't think of on his own and thereby he becomes like a sort of amalgamation of the both of them, you know, like they sort of become the same person and then there's the betrayal thing. And then like, I don't know, I don't know. There's something, we talked about this a bit last week, of course, too, but there's also something gay about your, the intrinsic parts of your development as a human when it's a coming of age story coming from intense intimacy with your friend. Yeah, well, and I think like if we're connecting it to this idea of like seeking your identity in another person, it's like you're seeking your adult identity in another person. And unlike the sort of stories we were talking about last week where it's like right now you're living in this bubble where this is possible and then you will leave this bubble. In something like Newsies, it's like the person you're becoming is a person who is a life partner of this person. Yeah, like you, David, are growing up to be Jack's life partner and that's the man you're becoming. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. Mm, mm. And it's a growth that's sort of like enabled it's a different kind of coming of age I mean it's sort of I think we kind of see the same thing in like bend it like Beckham and some of our other kind of more hopeful teenage movies of Mm. like enabling the other's development in a Mm -hmm. way that is very often the structure of a teen romance you know usually I mean like in Romeo and Juliet in certain ways it's like the thing that they are doing is like in a in a well-structured romance the personal development and the romantic development are the same story the because same, right. mm-hmm. thematically and in terms of the things that the characters need to learn about themselves and about the world the person they learn it from is the romantic partner and so getting together right. with the romantic partner is like the symbol that you have learned the things you need to learn and like as we discussed like that is basically what happens in those movies except 100%. for they kind of with the 11th hour like oh heterosexual love interest do Right. Okay. That's so interesting. Because as you were talking about it, I like forgot about the entire premise of this podcast and was like back to the like, I was like back to the original question of like, you're right. The same thing is true in heterosexual romances. So why? So like, why are these ones gay then? And you know, like I like got way down a weird rabbit hole in my mind there. And then I was like, oh, that's right. It's because 
the central thing structurally, like you're talking about is if the, it's because we are trained by heterosexual romances to recognize the person who helps you become yourself as the romantic partner. And mm -hmm. when it's two boys, it's gay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> it's gay. It's um, gay. I mean, and like, yeah. that's why you can have, I think something like, well, I mean, cause like then, so like, what do you do when you have something like Ocean's Eleven where it's not right. really that Danny and Rusty or, well, no, I think Miguel and Julio do need to learn some things. Um, like Danny and Rusty, the pleasure of something like that. And even to a certain extent, the pleasure of something like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Is that they are fully developed adults. Right. The pleasure is in watching clever, competent people do something cleverly and competently. Right. And face largely either external problems or internal problems that are so intrinsic to their personality that you know they're not going anywhere. <laughs> brilliant. No, that's brilliant. It's, it's so interesting for you to point, for you to isolate those two and point them out as like on a different kind of echelon than things like Newsies or like Stand By Me, you know, the growing up stories. Is that like the, the specifically the word pleasure about those narratives that's so fun is I would say that the pleasure of like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock is it's um it's an intimacy that we aren't watching develop it's so well established that what mm -hmm. we're watching is like yeah competent people doing something amazing but also like the brilliance by that point by the time they're like all adult men of the shorthand of like holy shit look how well these people know each other yes like being really really well known yes. is gay <laughs> like i okay <laughs> I no. need to digress. So I've alluded several times to the fact that I've spent part of Lockdown watching um, adaptations of Chinese Ganmei novels um, on Netflix. And there's Happy we're going here. We got to bear witness to Haley's, uh, to Haley's issues together. <laughs> um, just watch The Untamed. Anyway, so there's a <laughs> word that I'm not going to try to pronounce in Chinese that gets really consistently translated in these stories as soulmate. Um, but the actual like sort of meaning of the word in a more accurate sense is something like the person who sees you. Oh my God. And that is the sort of essence of like the soulmate is sort of the best possible translation, but like what it, the kind of thing that is being expressed is a mutual seeing, seeing. and recognition. And I think that's sort of exactly that, right? The idea that it's like, it's the person who like, you don't have to explain the plan before that you do it because they already know what you're going to do. Exactly. And in a way that is the essence of of true collaboration. That's why the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Sherlock is so much fun. And also why Ocean's Eleven is so fun is that like perfect collaboration results from an intimacy so elemental that that's why we look at it from the outside and we're like, that is not normal. That's what we're, that's what we're noticing. And there's something here, like, I, I haven't quite articulated this, yeah. but like, there's something here in the artists that we, you really, really rarely see movies about artistic collaboration because we are culturally too obsessed with the idea of like the lone genius. Singular like, geniuses, yeah. Yeah, to like really understand, I think, how to depict and kind of respect mm. artistic collaboration. And actually some of the exceptions I can think of like music and lyrics are rom-coms, where it is a romantic partnership who mm. are doing the collaborating. But there's something in these sort of 
writers whose main character is the other person like that is a kind of artistic collaboration yes like I'm not I have I'm I can't quite grasp what I'm trying to say here um except for that well or um like another movie that we can't talk about stage beauty oh I'm so glad we're arriving here at last yeah just thinking of artist of depictions of artistic collaborations. Yes. Really fucked up ones, to be clear. To be fair, yes. Um, if people don't know Stage Beauty, you should watch it, but it is about, um, I mean, whatever the historical accuracy of this, but right. like Claire Danes plays the first woman in Restoration mm-hmm. England to play female roles on stage right. instead of men. And Billy Crudup plays what like basically the last the man last man <laughs> to play these female yeah. roles and like he sort of goes through this spiral of kind of mm-hmm. jealousy and mm-hmm. like is both her mentor and her rival yes. as she kind of ascends while he falls and the movie ends in them playing Othello and Desdemona together together um but in the process there's a lot of weird psychosexual yeah, they're sort of, I mean, it's, it's so, I feel like I have to jump in here because it's so, I, I have thought about what if we did stage beauty at some, at some point, because the thing is you almost could do a straight up episode about it because it looks heterosexual because it's a man and a woman. It is not heterosexual. It's deeply queer and strange. Yeah. I mean, but also like his character is explicitly bi at least. By at least, but also, but, but also um, there's a lot of really interesting gender confusion going on in the kind of, in both of them in a certain way, but obviously him particularly, and the movie ends with Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, I mean, to be, so there's, you know, like that, there's that sequence in Shakespeare in Love, which I assume more people have seen, where they sort of are rehearsing as Romeo and Juliet while having sex. Right, it's that. As a version of that, yeah. a million times weirder because they keep switching who is playing which role and who is topping and who is wearing right. what. Like, it's just this, like, phantasm of gender yeah. confusion. Actually, we probably yeah. could have done Shakespeare in Love as well, to be fair. We um, probably could. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so, yeah, it's, but it's, that is, like, a form of, like, artistic collaboration as right. sex, and then they, like, invent naturalistic acting together. <laughs> yes, they do. They do. In a very kind of funny, um, in a very sort of early aughts kind of twist, you know what I mean? I feel yes. like that, that's sort of the twist of stage beauty is that, you you know, once you get to the end, you, it's so, they're so invested, you kind of can't tell if the violence is real, you know, that kind of whole moment. But, um, but yeah, there is a, there are a lot of really, really interesting dynamics there, but, but I'm trying to think of other, I was thinking of other art movies or like art, you know, like art stories. And obviously the rival one that I thought of that is obvious is um, Amadeus. Of course. A movie we only didn't do because it's so long that we didn't feel like watching it. Yeah. But I think you could, because again, oh my falls, God, yes. <laughs> you could, I mean, and you know, it's interesting because obviously it falls into the same, um, it falls into the one-sided obsession question you asked in the beginning, sort yes. of like, obviously the whole point is that Salieri is so much more obsessed with Mozart and Mozart barely notices he's there until mm-hmm. the very end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is like a version of that dynamic that I think we haven't gotten in any other movie I mean, well, th- no, that's not true, actually. I think that that is that movie's version of 
Valjean saying, fine, you can arrest me. Yes, it's, I was just going to say, the thing it's, it's like is- Mozart yeah. saying, yes, I do need you. Right now I need you. Right. And that's not right. enough. Oh my gosh, you're so right. Yes, is that they do finally, and you know, yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing is that when they do, when he does get to the moment of now I do need you, it is only to transcribe his own. Yes. What he needs is for someone to write him down in the, in, you know, to- he needs a, he needs a chronicler. He needs a Watson. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. All coming together. It's all coming together. I'm glad we could finally reference Amadeus at least because we have thought about it, of course, but yeah, never quite found the avenue for it. Yeah. Yeah. We both watched the end, the national theater streaming one, which maybe yes. I should have just done that version, though. I think at the time we were being more, again, is it a movie? Is it a film version of a <laughs> Yeah, play? we were being very stringent. Yeah. It was <laughs> before we had done TV, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's that's a nice, um, though, again, the idea that it's like we can't, we don't know what to do with the idea of like artistic collaborators. We need rivals. I know, I know. Yeah, artistic collaborators, it's interesting that you said stage beauty. I mean, so this is a, I think that if we, a thing that we could have done that bears mentioning in the collaborators thing, but you haven't watched it, I don't think, is famed old school, uh, you know, Canadian uh limited series slings and arrows oh i yeah i watched the first season of it when i was in high school did you yeah i think that's another one where there's a line from it that i have thought of a lot in this conversation as well where the kind of definition that they reach because i mean spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen slings and arrows but um the arguably the most intimate relationship in the whole thing is between a man who is a director and his mentor who dies in the first episode and haunts him yes. as a collaborator and so like one of the pair is a ghost a spoiler that happens in the first episode it happened in the first episode but what's interesting is like the the relationship they they have such unfinished business i think it's really interesting that i've talked to some people who have never sort of noticed the queer reading of Slings and Arrows and I think it's so obvious and they end up having a conversation much much later towards the end where their definition of kind of what we've been talking about is um what if you have a person who is your life's intended audience Mm. and that because they work in the theater that is the parlance that makes sense to them and that's sort of the conclusion that they reach and it's a version of the soulmate thing it's like what if in a sense your life is being performed for one particular audience and that person's viewership is what makes you real yes I mean yes I think that is so because that's the heart of like the rivalry thing because it's yes. like look at me see me acknowledge me as your equal or your better but I right. think it's also especially in like the really fun the most fun I think this is a key to what makes the partnerships we were talking about the really established comfortable partnerships like Rusty and Danny and right. Miguel and Tulio and the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock and Watson so right. good is not only is it the comfort and ease of collaboration, but yes, the sense that it's like, I am performing this for you and for I know you. you are taking pleasure in watching me do this and vice versa. Our audience yes. is each other. Yes. I mean, because that's, that's the thing about being a con man, right? Is no one knows right. you're putting on a show except exactly. your partner. Exactly, exactly. And in a way, as you say, it stretches across both the collaborators and the rivals because if in a in an intense rivalry for the person who is really invested in it it's like your life is 
a performance given meaning by like yeah it's the same exact thing it's like you are nothing if this other person isn't watching you well I mean that's like the Moriarty thing right it's like he needs to send these nasty little clues to Sherlock and you know try to tip him off and like get Sherlock on his tail it's like there's no point in doing these he could get away with all these crimes without anyone knowing exactly but that's not the point right right yes yeah 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 it's I mean, yeah, I've thought about it. I'm glad to finally bring it up because of course I was like, well, we're never going to do all of Slings and Arrows because there's three seasons, there's lots of episodes, you know, but that kernel is the most important idea in it. I think of just like the nature of the really, of the most important relationships of your life is, is that. And there yeah. is a romantic dimension to like, it's, it's just like the level of importance. It's like, if one person is your audience and I mean, really like the quintessential sort of love triangle tension of Slings and Arrows is that, uh, the dead guy, the audience is more important to the main character than his romantic partner. Like mm. that, that is the point is that there is a tension between the romantic partner and the audience if they're not the same person. Well, and again, it's like to return to this idea of the person who sees you, yes. you know, that is Brilliant. your soulmate is your audience. Yeah. 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 That's gay. That, <laughs> that is gay. Yeah. And it, I think that connects well to like, the final sort of element of this that we were talking about before, which is a sense, especially when you are, for example, a criminal, of <laughs> you exist in a you exist sort of in opposition to or in isolation from the rest of the world. Like I think that that's what right. the kind of sense that these partnerships often give. You know, it's like in Newsies, you're part mm. of the union and you're fighting against the man, and when you're right. on, like you're doing a heist or a con, like you have this secret sort of little society of your team yeah. and the rest of the world on the outside. And I think even when yeah. you're in a rivalry, it's like you have this shared thing yeah. that the rest of the world yeah. is separate from. Exactly, exactly. And it's like, no one sort of knows the plot, but you, that's the mm-hmm. thing is it's like, you're actually inside a drama that no one can see except the person who is like really watching it with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like, Yeah, it's like, that's, I mean, that's sort of the, the they almost get to that idea specifically in Sherlock in the BBC Sherlock too of just the fact that it's like we're actually living in a world inside of a world that only makes sense if you are following the story essentially yeah and I think that the BBC Sherlock specifically introduces an element of that and like a sort of additional layer of this which is Mm. even having narrated their relationship to the public there is still a private and more truthful version that is influenced right. by that written version, right. but is deeper than it and still cannot fully be seen or accessed by anyone but each other. That's right. That's right. I mean, basically, if you are part of an impenetrable world that only makes sense to the person who shares it with you, whether they're your co- like collaborator or your rival, if you, if, if you have a shared secret world that no one else can see into or understand the rules of, that's gay. That is gay. And that is mm. why all <laughs> friendships, 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 rivalries, work relationships. <laughs> no, we already established that office workers are straight. That's no, yeah, office workers thing. are straight. It's collaborators gay. are gay. It's all gay. Not the Nazi kind, the fun kind of collaborator, to be clear. <laughs> to be very clear, yes, yes. Every time yeah. we say collaborator, that is the first thing that comes to my head. It's so funny. I was like, artistic collaboration is the only thing I think of. But yes, yes, no all relationships. Gay. Straight to Vichy, France. 
Yes. <laughs> I the truest sorry. thing you've ever said. <laughs> it's true, but it's all gay. It's all gay. Thank you so much for joining us for part two of our recap series. Uh, we will be back. We're going to sort of switch to a bi-weekly schedule for a couple weeks here. So we'll be back not next week, but the week after that mm. for another installment. Uh, so tune in, get mm. ready. We've given it away, but we'll probably talk about Victor Frankenstein. Listen, if you want us to even reference in passing the de-humping of that scene, <laughs> of that Victor Frankenstein, if you missed that episode, please, please join us. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> It's Until then, crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. You can join us on Instagram. <laughs> yes, you can. At This Movie Is Gay podcast. Or on our very sparsely populated Twitter at This Movie Is underscore gay. You can find mm. us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison. We'll be there. You can leave us a rating, a review, and you should subscribe so that the next yes. discussion lands seamlessly in your feed. Mm. We will see you then. Goodbye.